0: welcome to the petro nerds podcast with your hosts trisha curtis ceo of petro nerds this show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a rocky mountain showdown hello everyone and welcome to the petro nerds podcast this is episode 38 um it is january 28 2022 Okay, so January twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. It is Friday morning. Well, Friday. It's not morning anymore. But I have a great guest for us today. This is Aaron Hunter with ConocoPhillips. So really pumped about this this conversation we're going to have on the Permian Basin. Um, but just to start out and sort of you Know, encapsulate what's going on in the global oil market quite a bit actually is going on in the global oil market. And you know, if Aaron's comfortable, we're, we're definitely happy to touch on that. But this podcast will largely be focused on Conoco and the Permian. But oil prices are WTI is hovering around um 86 82, so we're, we're pushing this sort of 87 dollars level. Um, Brent is 90 bucks a barrel right now, and natural gas. Holy crap, the seesaw in the last couple of days, but right now it's saying it's 467. Check it back in 5 minutes it could be 7. Um so it's it's all over the place given weather events and um There is no end in sight to the the Russian-Ukrainian situation with Russian troops on the border, Russian troops also in Belarus, um, and lots of quietness out of China, um, which people should find a little bit alarming. So lots going on in the backdrop of the global oil market. But I love the Permian Basin, and as many do, and I love the rocks, and I love the nerdiness. And I am honored to have a great guest today, um, Aaron Hunter with ConocoPhillips. Hello.
1: Hello. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: No, oh, glad to be here.
0: Awesome. Um, so we're going to go through several topics, and you've listened to the podcast, so you kind of know it's rapid fire. And um, and one, I should start this way. You're willing to interrupt me, so um, absolutely, please Can do. do. Um, awesome. awesome, and we're we're sort of settled on a couple main topics, and we might go on some tangents and stuff, um, which is okay. But the main, you know, we want to. I want to sort of get into the Permian and nerdiness, given that you know you are the VP of Operations for Midland, so you know this stuff, and I would like like to get into sort of the the Permian nerdiness with ConocoPhillips. Obviously, ConocoPhillips is a public company, and there's been you know a pretty big change from you know the 20 rigs that Conoco was running in um, January of 2020 versus the 10 rigs now, and you know. That's reflective of sort of the public-private market bifurcation in 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 all of the U.S., but specifically, definitely in the Permian Basin. And then, obviously, Conoco has done two major acquisitions, one of which you're very familiar with with Concho. So Concho and now and Shell coming up. And this is again, this is in light of sort of the backdrop of. Um, you know, the big ESG push and the big, uh, so to, you know, adopting Paris climate accord agreements, the 2050 strategy. Right. So those are the three main things I think, and they're all very much interrelated. Um, and I think it's a great, uh, it's, it's quite timely and a good topic and a really good company to just sort of think about and talk about in the Permian Basin.
1: Absolutely. Looking forward to it. one, one, one small correction. I'm uh, vice president over Midland Basin. I've got a, another counterpart over all the Delaware Basin. So,
0: Awesome. Yes, Vice President of Midland. Okay, yep. so um, and hopefully you'll be willing to touch a little bit on you know more than just the uh, more than just Midland, but that's perfectly oh, yeah. okay yeah. if you can. Yeah. Um, so the Permian in General for Conoco. I mean, something that the first thing that strikes my mind. and I would. I know the, a lot of listeners are, are quite familiar with Permian. I mean, you know, Invaris data is still showing drilling info. Invaris is still showing um, under five million barrels per day, but we know that according to EIA, and we know given all the well additions, we know the Permian is probably pushing what production levels it was before. Right. Um, and Conoco did say, I mean, it wasn't broken out in, in the earnings call, or actually the production breakout was broken out in the earnings call. And Inveris shows you about 400,000 barrels per day for production for the Permian. But after the acquisitions, Conoco is going to be the single largest producer by far um, in the Permian Basin, so that's really significant. Um, but I think it's interesting to think about just from the 20 rigs to 10 rigs, and what what's actually happening right now, what's going on on the ground. And um, it, the Midland has done thrived and done really well, especially over the course of 2020 and 2021. It kind of actually proved to the upside with lateral links and just delineation. Um, so I just kind of like to get into the nerdiness, and and we'll let you take from the top and and go on you know, whatever, whatever things you really want to talk about on the, the Permian nerdy side.
1: Yeah, you, you bet. So uh, some background on me, I, I moved to Midland about 17, 18 years ago. So I, I've been kind of a longtime Permian favorite or Permian fan down here. I, I started with Chevron um, seven, eight years there. Then I came over to Concho about nine years ago, of course, got acquired by by Conoco now. And um, I, I can definitely say it's been better, better than expected. No, no, nobody wants to be acquired by, by a bigger company, but I think it's been pretty, pretty good interaction so far. I think we're integrating well. Uh, there's some bumps here and there, but I think we're just we're having a pretty good impact on the company. Um, so for the Permian side, I mean, I know there was a major slowdown globally, but I would say it probably slowed down to about 75 percent speed in Midland. We never really hit rock bottom out here. Uh, of course, when oil went you know, negative, we were shutting into a bunch of stuff, but it really never slammed on the brakes. If anything, it kind of it probably helped us high grade rigs, high grade frac cores and really kind of slow down and focus on what we were doing on the essentials. And then whenever we ramp back up. Which we're doing right now, obviously, as as a basin, um, it just everything got more efficient. Some of those numbers you've already talked on is you can't really trust frac cores in the basin anymore, just with stage stage per day efficiency, pump, dyno, pump time efficiency, simu frac efficiency, all those things kind of blur the line right now with the, the whole rig to, to uh, rig to frac core ratio. So I, I think the one fascinating thing out here for us is you know I think we're at an all time high or getting close to up, not an all time high, but approaching pre COVID levels of rigs. But obviously, the, the shift has mixed or the, the mix of shift there. Um, it's about 60 percent private now, 40 percent um, public or, or b- bigger companies. So the production growth you're seeing coming out of the Permian right now is, is not public driven, not major driven. It's, it's all privates that are kind of coming together. And that, that's what they have to do. They have to chew through their acreage. Or they have to prove their value and work, work their, their inventory while the big publics are, are you know, they're, we're, we're generating free cash flow. We're not ramping up on emissions. We're doing everything that the market's indicating for us, and not growing our production out the top. But despite all that, production in Permian still still climbing.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you taught you you touch on a lot of great. Things there, and I think one is the Midland, and and we can certainly encapsulate the Delaware, but the Midland really ha- did prove I, I, it did prove extremely resilient, especially especially over the course of 2020 and 2021. And part of that I really think is because uh, you know I had clients and stuff asking me, a lot and I I would tell them, look, it's well known, it's shallower, it's it's a, a very well known play. You ha- that's where you had a, you know historically a ton of verticals. I mean, so it's it's I wouldn't I don't use the word easier because it's not, but it is a place that you can sort of like get down to business. You had a lot of privates that were able to move been sort of hot and heavy and, and, and it it was just lateral lengths now are what over, um, over ten, well over 10,000 feet, yes. pushing 11,000 feet on average. So you've really seen that step up in ladder length because of the getting all the acreage tied up together. And that's been, I think, proven really great for not just the, the publics, but also the privates in Midland. And so the Midland has really just been, I would say, exceptionally resilient, despite probably more resilient than the than most oil places uh, um, all over the world in just a little pocket because of, of these number of different factors that sort of led to stability um, being a, not easier to drill, but well-known, understandable, enabling, yep increase those lateral links and get those efficiencies down
1: no, I completely agree I think that's how midland Basin thrives is I, I kind of call midland Basin economics of course when you compare them to Delaware they're basically sneaky good in, in midland Basin and I would say it's definitely not easy in midland Basin but it's certainly a lot a lot less complex um, whether whether you, it's kind of more stacked, layer cake geology you don't have the complexity of the Delaware you don't have the reservoir pressure of, of the Delaware which hurts and helps. But, yeah, for, for us personally as Conoco and uh, some Heritage Concho stuff in the Midland side, we've got, I think, 19 or twenty three milers online now. We're uh, finishing fracking one of our 3.6-milers. Um, so it, all, all that's pointing towards longer laterals. But really all that drives down towards is the way Midland wins is through efficiency. I mean, we the cost per foot, frack stages per day, whatever whatever metric you want to look at it, the way we win Maybe in Midland 20 is just 20 wells at,
0: for, for a public company to have that many wells at a at- – Twenty. I mean, three mile long laterals. I, I think you know when I, I think about if international folks are listening or people sort of maybe even not super familiar with the industry, three mile long. I mean, we were we've been doing two miles, you know, basically since the beginning in North Dakota, you know, in the Wilson Basin. But we weren't really doing that necessarily everywhere else, and partly because that was because acreage. But it's also there was a comfortableness level I think with a lot of folks of you know, how well can you actually complete the, the toe of that well, how well can you actually complete the very end, you know, yep. the drill outs, all, all the all the things. A lot of that I think has incrementally gotten better. And obviously I do think high oil prices help because it's sorta yeah if you miss a little bit here and there, it's sort of not the end of the world. it's so, it's like well, when we were arguing about well spacing in you know the Turner formation in the Powder River Basin, you know it didn't work at fifty dollar oil, but I think you can tighten up a lot of things right now, and everything sort of looks good at ninety. so I think part of that definitely willing to be pushing the envelope is you got high, high prices and why instead of drilling two wells you know and doing yeah. a whole top on on, on everything in surface location, you might as well do another one. And I think just we're not seeing, you know, I look at the decline curves and I've looked at ConocoPhillips as well. And they're not, it's not like you're improving year over year, but you're not degrading. You know, they're roughly in line. You're looking at five year normalized decline curves for all of the Permian Basin for ConocoPhillips, Phillips and they, they stack in each other nicely, they stack on top of each other really nicely. So it's not like you're seeing diminishing marginal returns, which means you're right. Those efficiencies that if you're doing a three mile long lateral, I'm guessing that you can, you're going to try to have more than one or, you know, a handful of wells. So you want to simulfrack um, right. and you want to create right. as many efficiencies as possible in those operations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about it. If we have a four-well pad and they're all three miles, I can drill 12 miles of lateral from one pad and that just makes things a lot easier.
0: Okay. So, you know, in the earnings call, they did mention that you have 15 15 operator rigs total for, for Conoco. And we know from inverse, you know, your data, as at least earlier this month, there were ten rigs running. There have been about about ten rigs right in the Permian for Conoco, yes. and um, for a while, that's that's off the again off the you know twenty rigs running in January 2020. It's it came down significantly, and then it sort of edged back up. I don't know where you bottomed at, um, but it's edged back up from you've added a few rigs back. You're sort of hanging at that ten, and then I think the earnings call also said seventeen total frac crews, um, and so I don't know how many frac crews you have running in the Permian, but obviously the majority of the activity given that 10 of those 15 rigs are in the Permian. The majority of the activity is in the Permian. And I guess I would like to illuminate the listeners because i think about when i think about activity in the permian and when i break it out for clients and i'm studying i like to i love to show rigs i love to show permits i love to show ducks even though we know ducks are, are not a great indicator yeah, for a lot yeah. of things but uh, together they tell you they can tell you stories and then i like to show um actual well completion so you know the what are the well additions and that's not perfect either but it's it's you know how many wells we're bringing online and in addition to the big public private split that we see on the rig side and just to point out i mean in jan as of the beginning of january we had you know nearly 282 rigs running in the Permian, 22 public companies were running 146 rigs, where um, you had over 50 private operators running 136 rigs. And the reason I want to bring that to the well completion side is that, you know, we basically to be adding oil production, when you're breaking out the well completions in the Permian, you start seeing the same thing where you you see the public's you know, the publics are bringing on, they are starting to bring back wells. And in the Permian Basin as a whole, when you're looking at well completions, it's not recovered completely. We're not pre-covered, you know, COVID levels where we're adding, you know, 400 wells a month, but we're nearing right. there and it's, yeah. it's recovered much better than any other basin. Um, and But the privates have really ratcheted up significantly and the publics are, are coming along, but it's not quite there. So I'm just curious if you can give us a little color on, and and, and if you can't speak to that exactly for, you know, Conoco on, on the exact number of wells, that's fine. But other like to know the trajectory and sort of how is the, you know, with the 10 rigs and the wells you're bringing online, um, what's, is it steady? Is it steady as you go? And it's just going to be sort of incremental. What does it sort of look like on that side?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Activity wise is, is steady, but but obviously as you get more efficient at your steady rig, you're going to do more wells. And I, honestly, I probably, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but we're going to have a similar number to wells as last year, I think. Um, with with the, the holding flat at the ten rigs, I think the ten rigs is pre show. I think we're more than that post show. Um, that that closed in December. So um, and on on the frac side, I, I, frac side, I think we what I love about the frac side. I think we have four or five frac cores right now in here. Um, what I love about those is, granted, I don't I don't research everybody's frac cores every day. But on the Conoco side, and we kind of started on the Concho side, all of our we, we don't have any more diesel frack rigs anymore. They're either all tier four or E, e, e frack right now on our frack rigs. So, um, which is honestly the, the, the tier four dual fuel, man, that, that, that's turned out to be a pretty nice setup just efficiency wise. And of course you save on all the diesel. So we really, really, really like the uptime on all those rigs. So basically flat activity, but but like I said, the more you, you I think if, if you shave your efficiency off like 10%, that's another what, three wells a year. So pretty good.
0: And on that can we can we talk a little bit about the that the tier four and the electric. Cause you know, I was listening yeah. to, I was listening to the, you know, Halliburton's call and I, I, I don't know if Liberty's had those yet, but I mean, all, everybody's obviously talking about the electric and I, I think it's, I do think it's fascinating because Halliburton only a couple of years ago was saying, we're not doing that. Um, and now obviously they're doing it and everyone's leaning into it because there is so much demand, um, you know, from public companies to lower, you know, to be able to say they're lowering their, their, uh, their carbon footprint and they want to say this through the electric electric frack fleet side. And then there's sort of an illumination to are are the, you know, are the frack companies actually making money with this is, is a question. But but from the standpoint right now of what actually makes sense for both from the service provider and the operator is that the operator gets to use it, right? And I think EOG was one of the big push, at least in the premiere of saying, using a bunch of electric frack fleets. But the dual being able Tier four dual fuel versus electric, and what fuel you're using. I mean, right now with gas prices this high as they are, with diesel prices this high as they are, um, right. and versus or, or tying into the grid. I mean, the pricing, the, all that matters, right?
1: Uh, absolutely matters. Yeah, one hundred percent. The one thing I would note is, like I said, a small brag here, and I think it's public. But on the Concho side, Concho was one of the first ones to have the tier four out here in the basin. I, th- I think EOG beat us or somebody else beat us on the Efrac, but but. But no, Con- you guys Con- were big on it. Yeah, Concho had the first Tier 4 out here, which kind of felt nice. But for, for that, obviously, when gas is low and diesel was high, it was amazing savings on the Tier 4. Uh, but Tier 4, you get up to, I think, 60%, 70% uh, re- replacement of diesel, which is pretty good, especially when you're running steady state. I think steady state, they can do like 80% um, replacement, but then you ramp up, ramp, ramp down for stages. Averages out between 50 and 60% displacement. But yeah, we're, we're, we're big fans of the dual fuel, and we're, I would say we're working our way through the EFRAC side.
0: Yeah. And that's probably, I mean, I know people talk about it and, and you don't have to get, cause you're, you're public, but I know pe- people talk about it a lot. I don't think the, I don't think the data is quite out. No one says, you know, no one's explicitly saying this is what it costs us and, you know, on either side. So we're not hearing, yeah. you know, we're not hearing a whole lot of clarity from the service companies of here's what we paid for Here's what we're charging. Right. And we're not hearing the same thing from the, from the public companies. Although everybody wants to talk about it because it, 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 it um, sounds really good with this ESG stuff. And I just, uh, I, I would put a little bit of caution to people. Of it does eventually have to make money for this to actually, yep. for this to
1: work. Well, I think it's just going to be just like every other breakthrough technology is, you know, they're, it's going to be expensive at first. And as you learn things and grind out the efficiencies, it's going to compete.
0: Right. Ab- absolutely. Um, and I, th- I think there's a, there'll they'll, they'll be a lot of progression and it's quite new. Yep. So I, I do, there's one tangent I want to pick up and that's because uh, I did listen to your, you guys are, are going to have your earnings call in a few days. Um, but I was listening to the last, last couple and the inflation piece, which I thought has been, you know, last it was da- sort of downplayed by many operators in, in the last couple quarters, the inflation piece. I think um, I'm guessing it's not going to be able to be as downplayed as much. I feel like inflation and maybe not so much Midland, but I just feel like inflation in the Permian has to be, you, people absolutely have to be feeling this. So I want to get into the nerdiness of sort of well spacing and stuff like this and, and investor pressure. But I, what's the um, I- inflation side of looking of these? I'm hearing OCTG, obviously, you know, pipe is expensive, um, you know, chemicals getting them and, you know, not just inflation but the ability to get stuff especially if it's not made in the u.s feels like it could be very problematic or potentially problematic
1: yep yeah and honestly i think that's probably one of the nice things that conoco has brought to the table on this whole thing in the permian is we've got this long-term long-term supply contracts for pipe and everything tubulars and i can't comment on actual numbers of inflation but it is real in the permian it is real everywhere i think obviously um i think we are probably seeing it on the steel side more than any other side chemicals are doing okay um but on, on the drilling side what's amazing is a lot of these drilling efficiencies we keep seeing are cutting through a lot of the inflation so the com- completion side is kind of it is what it is whenever you're pumping 22 hours a day it's kind of hard to to get you know the 23rd and 24th hour a day of pump time but uh the, the efficiencies we're seeing on the drilling mostly are, are cutting through a ton of the inflation side and just yeah, uh, hats I, off I to all, all the drillers out there that are making it work
0: yeah. And I, I think people really, and I harp on it a lot because a lot of people sort of look at the count and they look at the drilling stuff and they say, yeah, it's meaningless. And I think you really have to break out. And I love showing people and showing clients of, of and when to give presentations is just the average lateral length, right? Break out the average yeah. lateral length, even by sometimes by operator. And you see, holy moly, you know, these three mile long laterals and the ability, uh, people in the Permian, and they said the same thing in the powder, you know, a few years ago, pre-COVID, it was, the ability to go, one, the Delaware has, it's, it's deep. So not every company was comfortable, you know, actually, you know, drilling it. A- At vertical depth of 12 to 13,000 feet pressures, temperatures, sort of, you name it. Um, but then it was sort of like after that, then it was uh, how far are you going to go in the lateral length? And, and it was the speed and it seemed to be like everybody was hung up of, no, it takes well over two weeks in the Delaware. And I, I always tell people just look at a previous downturn. Every time we have a a drop, people get smarter, people get faster. And lo and behold, it took, it took a matter. I would say even almost, it wasn't, it wasn't a quarter. It, It was a month, maybe even weeks that, that, the speed at which drilling got better. Um, and part of that I think was getting the right people into the right companies, you know, having the right. right drilling guy to go to, to push it. But it was almost overnight that people in the Permian, and I would say the powder as well, where it was, well, no, we can't do this under, you know, 15 days. And all of a sudden it gets crushed and, Oh, and maybe 15 days is pushing it. But I mean, we were hearing a lot of folks who, you know, it was 20 days per well, you know, um, some, some folks, it was a month, you know, and it, in other basins. I mean here in, in the DJ and it's much easier to drill in, in the in the DJ basin, but you can, yeah, you can spud the T D in, in a few days now. Um, and we're pushing yeah. these lateral lengths of three miles as well. So the the when I was hearing this in the mid, I think it's it's really important for people to think about that. Yeah, can you offset your costs? And people would say maybe that's BS. I don't think it's BS. I think you can truly if you're if you're dramatically increased the speed at which you're drilling and you're drilling those longer laterals, that takes a lot of it gives you a lot more flexibility in the time perspective as well.
1: I, I Absolutely agree, 100% with that. Um, and just from the, the, the Midland side, it was to go from two to three to three and a half miles. And I, we're, I know we're not the only ones doing. Other companies have longer laterals, but some of our, you know, some of some of our proudest moments out here is we had, you know, eight, ten, twelve, well, not eight. We, like we went from 14 days per two mile lateral down to ten. I think we just did one sub ten. But then you look oh, wow. around and there's other people doing it in seven and eight days that are a little bit more east and eastern in the Midland base, a little more shallow out there. But there's people doing it routinely sub ten now
0: yeah and then I mean and you're probably not seeing that quite on the frac side um, and even but I, I would think that even if the if the costs, so even if the cost, right, you have inflation on the, on the frack side and and again, right. you don't need to talk to the amount, but we know we have, it. everybody knows we have inflation in the economy. We know can't find truck drivers and everything. So you're going to have, you're going to have inflation on sand, fluid chemicals, you, you name right. it. So you're going to have inflation on completions, but if you're doing it faster um, or you're, or just consistently and you don't have that downtime, that's what the frac companies want too, right? They don't want that downtime because they're not getting paid. Right. So everybody's right. sort of in it to win it. And then if you have these longer laterals, so if you, if you got two wells lined up next to a, each other and they're pushing three miles and your frack and all that, you have efficiencies because you're not moving, you know, you're doing three miles, uh, two, three mile wells instead of two, um, two miles. And I mean, you're doing two wells at once. So you're going to bake in those efficiencies and those are going to continue to grow. So I would say even probably to some degree, I would get, I'm guessing that this year will be a big deal for, for pushing the envelope for the efficiencies on the side.
1: Absolutely. Um, one of the things we're realizing in Midland Basin or actually across the whole Permian is this, uh, in Basin sand. I know you've heard about it before but the fact that we can just locate the sand mine 10 10, bad, 10 15 miles yeah. of you know it's amazing but okay so it's, it's it's one thing to have sand in basin and you know only 10 or 15 miles from your from your frac location but logistics to get it there pull it out of the ground wash it dry it everything else the, the logistics behind that is just i mean it's almost it's almost thinking of like uber for sand delivery now of how they're how they're handling loads between jobs and it's, it's amazing how all that stuff works and it it's, it's been tight a few times on sand but we we have yet to be, to be waiting on it
0: Yeah. And I think I I will say that I'm I'm not confident that across the whole basin, everyone will be using localized sand. But I do think that um, if you're pushing people on, if you're pushing big companies who are trying to run these big operations and they need the sand and you've got you've got inflation, that local, the local local, I'm talking like, you know, near the near the pad, near the site, um, those. The, those are going to develop in earnest in 20 over the course of 2022. Um, and I've mentioned it before, Nomad Prop, and I think companies like them are going to, I mean, the, uh, there's a few others. They're going to be popping up because I mean, if, if you have it in the technology and I think the, the fr- these are small solutions on the frack side, whether you're pumping wet sand or you're pumping not, if you are pumping, wet sand, you are. You do get an ESG benefit and a carbon benefit because you're not drying this stuff. So, I mean, there are lots of little things in here that, again, they, they take some time to work out. I don't think, you know, every slug of private, private operators are doing it, but I would guess that some publics would sort of be leaning into this a little bit. And it, it probably, as, as the if the inflation piece and the bite creeps up, this might be an incentive as well to, to get it as, as local as possible um, to remove that sort of the uberizing.
1: Yeah, agreed, and I think that's just kind of the call it the Texas spirit or the West West Texas oil field spirit is you I mean kind of an old adage of, if, you, if you give an engineer and a landman an idea they'll go figure it out and it's kind of what, kind of what they're doing.
0: Yep. So I'm going to push you a little bit now on the the okay so Midland which I, I which I love I love the Midland and I would like to know sort of you know thinking about the well spacing and stuff and I, I if you can talk to the Delaware a bit I think that'd be great and the reason I yep. bring it up is because you know I often talk to. Folks that listen to the podcast, and I talk to clients, and and give folks I give presentations to all the time is the evolution of investor pressure, and I always kind of bring it back to like, well, we used to a few years ago, we were talking about well spacing and how, you know, some New York analysts were talking about, oh, the well spacing didn't work. And you kept seeing in the Wall Street Journal and everything. And the, it was over and the business was over and the Permian was going to be dead. And everybody lied about their well spacing. And it's just terrible. And yep. that was not the case, obviously. So we, we bucked through that trend and we, we've moved on. And I that's why I really think people have to be very, very careful about thinking about what investors push on and how how that ebbs and flows and how transient and transitory that is in nature. Um, but it really is a b- actually well spacing. Is still a very big deal in terms of well spacing, uh, well orientation, like the, you know, how. When you complete the wells, the order in which you're completing the wells, all these things actually really matter. And now in earnings calls, we don't even hear about the nerdy stuff that I used to that I love. Nobody even talks about well performance or anything. It's it's here's production and here's this, and then let's talk about ESG and emissions. And I really do think I mean you're, these are still oil companies. They still produce oil. And yes, oil prices are high, but I think this this nerdy element I'd like to talk about of sort of and it still matters for a lot of analysts, a lot of folks of just understanding the oil market is what does it look like? I mean, I, we know that decline curves are sort of on top of each other, but it doesn't seem like they're diminishing or declining. So uh, we, have we sort of bucked that trend on the well spacing? And um, is there any nerdy, cool stuff? Or what is the, what does that sort of look like? And, and am I right on the orientation and the timing in which you're completing? And I imagine we're still learning on a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I, I would say we're probably in the Fifth or sixth inning on spacing is kind of how, how I would put it. We, we've all learned a ton. Of course, Concho had its own learnings on spacing as well as others. Um, we all kind of did it at the same time. As you're right, it was pushed by our own drive, investor drive, to dr- drum up resource, drum up well count, drum up sticks. I think we all fell into that trap. And, of course, we didn't know at the time. You don't, you don't know until you – I guess hindsight's twenty twenty on those. So, so we were all doing that at the same time. Some companies were more public with it than others. Um, but but I, I think through the through the downturn, through the oil price dip, and just the uh the, the, the sheer learning that we all did on the reservoir side of this is, as yes yeah, so to get really technical when you space wells close together and you frack them and bring them online for the first eight 90 120 180 days those wells don't know they're tight they don't they don't know they're close together they haven't seen that boundary dominated flow yet so what when, whenever whenever people see the news three months in four months in, five months in and these wells look just like they used to that's you know we cheer and let's go do more but then the people that get ahead of themselves and they go drill a bunch more at that spacing and it takes them another six months to get them online. Now the wells that are 10 months old are declining a lot faster than they thought they would. And then you're kind of in a trap because you've already drilled more wells at the tight spacing. So I think for the most part, most operators have already dug themselves out on that. And I think I think again, we have different spacing than other peers and competitors in the basin. But I think for the most part, people have found their, their, uh, their tight curve model with the right economic model and they're sticking with it. But I was just having a conversation today again around spacing and you know whether we're trying to de- determine how much spacing is a factor of oil price and we don't know the answer yet, but kind of an interesting theory to run down.
0: Yeah, and I mean that's why I kind of push it is that obviously with the with the the surge of these private operators, you know, drilling completing wells, which think that even just a few years ago, many, many people said that you would not see that, that 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 day was over for the U.S. And right. I make it very clear to people, private operators are dominating the recount, the completions activity, everything in the U.S. And that is going to have implications for how it all sort of plays out. So I right. would guess that some of these private operators are, haven't yet figured out their exact well spacing and, and the timing. I mean, when you when you say the you know, the uh, yes, the, the 10 months later, it doesn't know. But the particularly like in the Delaware and I think parts of right. the Midland as well, but when you have these over-pressured, it's the timing of when you're doing sequencing and you're doing the, you know, multiple uh, layers, right. We're, we're wine racking or, or yep. it's beyond wine racking at that point. Cause you have multiple layers, but right. that piece, you know, what my question is that if you have the publics that have brought their rig counts way down, is that being managed efficiently or accurately of like, okay. I mean, we saw what um, we saw how many rigs Exxon had, pre-COVID and, you know, they were mowing down a whole section in New Mexico that was over 50 rigs, right? And they were really mowing it down. And basically there was, there was some good logic to that because it was like, we're doing this all at once. We're doing all these reservoirs at once. And the sort of logic behind that before was that you want to drain all at once. You don't want to come back a year later or two years later. So are, are we sort of forgoing some of that or, or are we going to be able to go back and sort of do some of that?
1: Uh, the answer is both. It depends on the basin. Um, I I think what I learned or what we learned in Midland Basin a long time ago was, um, no no matter what you do, call it the, you know, zone a, no matter what you do in zone a is probably going to influence zone B and zone C around you. Absolutely. Um, But it's all a creative economics. So if if you're in zone a and the zone above you is only a 15% or 10% rate of return or whatever, some, some marginal economics, you don't really care about that damage. But if the zone below you is you know, really accretive and you know, call it a 50, 50% rate of return or whatever, some high number, then you probably want to think about co-developing those zones together or come back to a surprise whenever you want to do it. I think for the most part, that learning, again, I'm speaking mainly for the Midland Basin here. I think for the Midland Basin, it's pretty well defined. The damage you're going to do above and below and side by side with a single well, we can quantify that. I think with the complexity of the Delaware, the geology changes so fast and there's a lot more carbonate stringers over there that, you know. The, the the carbonate stringles will act as a frac barrier, so um, I, th- I think there's a lot more figuring out to do over there on the spacing. Plus, they have, frankly, more more actual rock space between their landing zones, so potentially less damage there. But yeah, it, and it, it is would, real. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, and I think that's great. I, I just think it's nice because I think a lot of a lot of people think it's figured out, and I think you're right. I, probably for the Midland. It's well defined, and still, I am sure there is incremental learnings and stuff uh, you guys can do, and folks do. But I, I think that pro- most likely, there is no way the Delaware everyone is completely figured sure. out what's the perfect sure. secret sauce. And I, I do think that this shift by publics, and I am not saying you guys, but the shift by publics of other big companies, that you can't go from fifty-five rigs to ten rigs, and you know, and and everything be the same. Like your development right. process and everything just isn't the same. And, and that is something investors and shareholders and folks have to have to take into account. But I think you know. The interesting thing with you guys is, and I, I put this out for the number the the actual number because i you, you're right in that Well, I think your last two earnings calls talk about the the basically the the production's going to stay roughly flattish right there's no going to be massive f- massive increase, but just for the numbers, I was looking this up it's so and i I think about this in terms of the wells, so when people talk about you know eleven and a half million barrels a day of crude oil production in the US, I say we did it relatively easy in some ways because we don't have nearly as many wells that we were bringing online as we were in the past years when we were, you know, 13 million barrels per day. And to put this into perspective, I mean, for, for Conoco, um, the various numbers, the drilling info numbers are 2019 was 363 wells for the Permian. Uh, 2020 was 229 wells. And the, the wells that are in the books for 2021 are 176. And, the, I was looking at the first month, first three month oil production, first six month oil production, and you know the last 2020, 2021 were really in line. They were the first three months were about the same. First six month though, there was an increase. So even in 2021, there was an increase in the first six month oil oil production. It, it moved up considerably, which was kind of exciting. And the cume liquids has actually edged up um, as well. Is that it's so these there's more liquids. Um, it went from 68 uh, to 79 from in three years. And then the lateral length. I mean just. People again. I know I harp on this lateral length thing, but I think it's awesome. Is that in 2019 the average lateral length for Conoco was 8,700 feet, and now it's uh, it's 10,500 feet, roughly um, right. average lateral right. length. That's huge. I mean, and if you're showing that that first six month production performance is actually increasing, um, that's pretty meaningful.
1: Yep, agreed. I, I would I would say that's la- la- definitely lateral length accretive, but I think that points to some of our uh, some of the industry wide upspacing we've been doing as well, as far as seeing that increase in the six and nine month numbers.
0: Right, I, I and think is that is that shows to the up- declining slower? Is that is that industry wide upspacing? I mean, is that uh, are we talking a uh, hundred feet, two hundred feet, or, or are we sort of? And like you said, when we we're talking Midland, we've sort of figured it out. Is that it, are people sort of split the difference of like, hey, we get a little benefit here, but we don't want to, we don't want to like lose all our our, we don't want to lose all our holes in the ground. So have we sort of got to a level where people are okay with, but it's not destroying um your yeah. acreage value as well
1: yeah i would say for the most part every every operator is going to be different based on their own financial metrics they want you know through the financial return metrics i would say for the most part the operators in midland and for the most part somewhat delaware that whatever you've chosen your spacing to be you're comfortable with it i don't think there's too many spacing tests going up and down um whether it's four four wells per section for one company 10 wells per section for another company i think they've convinced themselves through their own degradation curves that what they're doing is right
0: yeah. Especially, I think, for the public, you're, you're probably right with that. So, um, yeah. I mean, is there anything else you would like to – any any little nerdy factoids that I'm sort of glossing over here on? I mean, there's a million things that we could get into on sand and spacing and
1: all you know, kinds one, of things. One thing you touched on earlier that, that I think is really, really muddies the water is this whole duck count conversation. Of course, no, no duck is created oh, equal. Oh, yeah. Um, like for on, on the private side, and I'm not, I know I'm generalizing broadly here, but on the private side, the quick pace, I think they have generally smaller projects, three, four well projects here and there. But then with the public side, which you touched on Exxon, and I, know, I think I know Midland Basin, I try to do it Midland Basin as well. Is we have these bigger projects. And it, just, just to illustrate the skew of some of the numbers, if you're running, you know, call it five rigs, four rigs in an area, but every one of those rigs is drilling a 15 well project, you're, you're just by default going to have more ducks. Yep. That it, it, and they're not, I mean, I, I struggle with the definition of a duck because it's, it's drilled uncompleted, uh, yes. It, <laughs> you, you, you can't complete it until the rig moves off the entire project. So I, I just, I, I would caution anybody really to think of, to look at ducks and say there's a, a great and untapped resource here in ducks. And I think it's just largely, those are wells waiting to be fracked until the, the project's developed.
0: A hundred percent. And a really, really good tangent. Because I think, you know, I literally, um, you know, I literally put slides together and I only show I only show ducks And when, and when people ask about it, it's only to say, this is not a duck the way you used to think about it. This is not, you know, a bunch of wells that are just sitting here. This is, the duck is basically just a function of it was drilled and it's going to be completed at some point, probably near soon. So the, the thing to think about it though, is that, I mean, you're right. If you're, if how many rigs you have versus how much you're drilling, you're just going to have this, this function of ducks that's going to continue to sort of roll over. And it's not the same as we're leaving, you know, 20 ducks to frack, you know, next year or whatever. It's, it's not, it's not that same anymore. However, it is important because if if you're if you're looking at it and the same where and I I think it's really because I'm actually looking right now at a map that shows a uh, private and public um map, like the private and public companies and its ducks and it's for midland only and you can see that it's very different, right? The the publics are, or the privates are, kind of all over. Same for the rigs. Yep. You can look at every basin across the country. Look at rigs. Look at permits. Look at ducks. And the privates are all over the place, right? There right. are, in, in essence, a little more nimble, flexible, and the the publics are well concentrated, right? All the even the ducks are, are relatively well concentrated. That's right. All this actually has pretty profound implications for the service sector. Um, anybody who's, which is bri- broad and wide, it is not just freight companies, That is tools, it is everything that is involved in the service sector because they're pivoting now to work with private operators and private operators aren't, aren't going to necessarily have perfectly predictable well performance. And sure. I mean, they're not necessarily going to have everything delineated. They're not necessarily going to have well spacing perfectly figured out. They are going to be, you know, testing and doing things, um, which, which can be great for some service providers working in that space. But it's just not um, the sort of like we had the analysis of U.S. oil production figured out, I think that's shifting. It's not going to, we're, we're going to have to sort of change that. Think of, yes, we kind of, with the publics, we know because every, sadly, all the publics have slowed down and, and focused on right. other things, but these privates are going to be doing other things. Um, and, and and it is going to amp- impact your the publics as well. I mean, what the privates do and and the function of getting things and what the basin looks like and everything is going to amp- impact publics. And and I still think, and I want to, I do kind of want to shift gears into acquisitions and, and some of your earnings calls, but I I think, um, I, th- I actually think that the market isn't settled in terms of, I mean, I know the publics think it is, but just because today, um, holding flat, um, and $90 oil, which I still think is shocking. I mean, it's $90 Brent. And yet the idea that you don't want to increase output even a little bit is, is mind blowing to me. Um, because the money that would be returned, uh, the money that would be returned to investors is huge. And right. actually, I mean, it, it, the, so you're making a lot of money on the soil and the ability to actually grow and grow actually the dividend and everything um, based upon putting a little bit more to CapEx might be quite smart. That conversation at least yet has not happened. Um, and I, I think it should start to happen. There's n- there's no way in the boardroom that that isn't something that's popping into people's minds, at least for private operators. I'm sure I know it is. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, so
0: Everyone. I guess with that, uh, with that, if you want to, if we want to, Kill the duck conversation, um, (laughs) which was a great point, by the way. Um, Really great point. And and move into this sort of the acquisition. Sure. um, And you're former Concho, right? Yes. Yes. So you know the Concho space well and company I love to follow. I mean, great earnings calls. You learned a ton. And again, this this is to my point of the earnings things you used to talk about well spacing and well additions and all this stuff. And and that's sort of, we don't get that color on, on these publics. And I think that is meaningful for people analyzing these basins of performance. But so two big acquisitions, I mean, Conoco, which I think is really smart and, and very smart actually for buying Concho. And, and I think, uh, Shell will look back and realize this was a pretty stupid decision to sell it, but also really smart by Conoco to buy it. I mean, this is one of your best, I mean, this is one of some of the best rock in the entire world is in the Permian Basin. Um, And Shell is this perfect little, if you pull up the acreage or just pull up the Conoco Phillips thing, you'll see it's like it's not in New Mexico. And I love New Mexico rock, it's fantastic, but it's right off the border. So you have no federal lands issues. And it's just like smack there. And it, it, you know, people kept asking in the earnings calls from Conoco, they kept asking about the efficiencies and Strat the synergies and 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 they weren't even echoing and i thought look at that map it's like this right. is just kind of a this is not this wouldn't be a bad deal for most people but th- it, it makes a lot of sense to me
1: i completely agree and i'll, I'll brag on our bd department for a while on that one i, I was not on the inside of that one because it was more delaware than midland but um but yeah hats off to them and of course cash does wonders on certain things obviously but the way that was accretive in Texas, both from a non-op and operating position, and just the, um, the now now the fodder we have to go through to optimize trades, to develop, to really control the pace of development out there. It was a very, very – this is the Shell one, of course. That was a very accretive transaction for Conoco in the basin.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I, I, mean, I think, I, I think been... many
1: people – go ahead, sorry.
0: No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: I, I, I just said, I think many people will look back on that and kind of – try to keep recalculating how how good of a deal that was, um, how how good of a transaction that was, I guess.
0: I think so too. I mean, I, and I am, I'm serious that I think history is going to judge shell unfavorably um, on, on this one. And, and history is going to judge a lot of publics unfavorably. So that's, what's fast. I mean, I want to focus on these, these transactions, these acquisitions for a second, but I do want to put them in context of, I think it's a little fascinating that, um, and I, and I hope analysts are, are, will be strong enough to to push questions a little bit harder on public companies to say look you're telling me that you have this triple mandate, which is what uh, for, for Conoco is it's meet the energy transition um, pathway demand, achieve net zero emissions um, and, and net zero emission ambition, um, and um, deliver competitive returns. Well, so that's the three sort of this three-pronged strategy. Two of those are in sort of the ESG and um, and ConocoPhillips, which I was shocked, especially given these acquisitions and and who ConocoPhillips is, I was shocked that they sort of got jumped into the Paris Climate Accord Agreement and said we're going net zero by 2050. So, um, to me, that's that you know is a bit of pandering. But regardless, it's the first company to do this, and there's these two things. I think that's fascinating in light of the fact that it's an oil. You're an oil company. You just had two major acquisitions in the Permian Basin, which says we're producing oil. We're, we're buying the, We bought these not because we want to sit on our thumbs. No, we're not going to go crazy and produce the oil and, and lose all returns. But um, we did buy them. I mean, we are an oil company. I mean, that's not stated clearly that, Hey, there's a reason, but it's, that's a big deal. And I think that's what is actually when, when brought more broadly, when people step back and look at the, what, what, Companies say and what they do. Um, company oil companies are making money on on drilling, completing wells, and making really good money right now, and doing it in a uh, you know reducing your methane, reducing your CO two. All those are all those are great in the grand scheme of things. Particularly, I think uh, the methane thing is probably even more important than the CO two. But I mean, those right. acquisitions are in light of and in spite of and at the same time of all these all this big ESG push as well.
1: Uh, absolutely, and I, I probably. I probably don't know enough about the Paris Accord and everything, so I probably can't speak too much on that one. However, I I really, I do actually like this, this we call it triple mandate because they're not really mutually exclusive. We are going to deliver energy for the transition. I think we all know it oil for for the large part. Something you've said on previous podcasts is you don't like fossil fuel, the name fossil fuels. I I absolutely agree with you. Um, I, I think more about it as energy density. So you know the density of, energy density of oil is so much better than energy density of wind, solar, whatever. And and only less natural gas is only slightly less energy dense than oil. So I, I think meeting this transition pathway for demand, it's going to depend on oil. It's going to depend on gas. I don't, I don't think there's any way to deny that, but in the next hundred, 150 years, who, who knows what, what kind of energy source we're going to be using down the road. So to get there from, to get from here to there, you know, that, that's this, this meet meet transition pathway demand. That, that's, that's part of that. But then the deliver accretive returns, you touched on it, is Shell was very accretive returns. I think Concho was very accretive returns for Conoco as well. And I, I, that, this is where I get maybe a little bit of hometown hometown pride is, I mean, I think we are going to develop it a lot more efficiently, more prudently than previous owners. Maybe not Concho. I'll show some Concho pride there. But certainly on the Shell side, we'll, we'll deliver it a lot more efficiently and prudently than they may have. And I think that's just the responsible thing to do. And then the third part, the mandate, I get it. I don't know if it's pandering or not, but, I mean, it's it's – it's it's kind of where everything's headed right now, and I guess we'll figure it out as we go.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean it's fair, and I'm not going to challenge you that on a you're a publicly traded company, and you're on a on a public podcast, so I get that. I I think it, it just that I do think that it takes it's going to take some real leadership in the space. Um, I, sure. I absolutely agree that Conoco Phillips is I would. I would 100%, you know, I'm a betting person. And if I was going to, if this was like football, I picked Phillips over Shell to execute on actually turning the Permian into something uh, because they had struggled over time. And the fact, just the idea that they would even sell it, even conceptually. And right. if you listen right. to their earnings calls and how they talk, they're now full q and I mean, they're not even, you know, because of the shareholder pressure and everything because of the Dutch court ruling. And I think, The U.S. companies just have to be very cognizant of that—that you know they're not even able to sort of run their company as as an oil and gas company. And the way they're explaining it to folks is that they are. You know they're transitioning, right? They need the oil money to transition to the other stuff, and I think it's it's going to be prudent for U.S. oil companies to be more honest about that, saying this is the way you say that, and I think it's a good way to clarify. Meeting the transition pathway, um, pathway demand is is that you know you're going to have to you're producing oil and gas uh, for this time period, um, and I think uh, I think it was your CEO that said on the last call that the energy transition is happening, and and I would call, I mean. Yes, it is happening. I think the degrees to that are going to are going to shift over time. And I also mm. think that and I just think the operators and leaders of in these companies, especially in public earnings calls, are going to have to be honest with that too. And it's going to be important because your shareholders may want you to be producing a little more oil at 90 at $90 a barrel or things can shift and things will shift politically. Sure. I mean, it's going to happen. Um, and that can change the impact on a Paris court L- lots of different things. So, that's sort of Separate. So I, I like your hometown pride, especially on the Concho. Agree <laughs> with the the actually developing it from a company perspective. Um, but that actual the acquisitions and the just the integration. I mean, that's you guys. I know the the integrate. Obviously, the shell integration hasn't happened yet, right? That closed, but that's not like those aren't in house and that will they right. They are. Okay. They, yeah, are yeah. okay. they are. They are in house. Okay. are, they are. But the production. So the is that included? So in the seven hundred ninety thousand barrels a day. I think it's. I think it's four. It was like four hundred some for the Permian, four hundred some thousand barrels a day for the Permian, two hundred seventeen thousand barrels a day for the Eagleford, and ninety five thousand barrels a day for the Bakken. That's, I mean, that's not um, that's not inclusive of that that would be
1: that would be extra, right?
0: Okay, yeah. So that's going to increase considerably, and then I assume the next earnings call and and the next couple quarters, we're going to hear lots more about this whole. Okay, um, that's my my job. Oh yeah, that'll be exciting. Um, Yeah, and and super fun. Yeah, so that, then that's great. And Shell, is that is there anything on the midland side? Are you doing? Are you guys getting anything? Um, that's all Delaware.
1: I think there might have been very very few like non-operated properties, but nothing nothing operated. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, non-up I think were some questions. So um, okay, anything else you want to add on the acquisition side that I'm leaving out? Oh, that's a, it's no, a topic
1: uh, well. no. I, other than just you know, I think it has been uh, from the Concho to Conoco side yeah, that's how they right. Concho to Conoco. I definitely think it's been better, better than expected. I think the kind of the tide is turning out here on the, for the heritage Concho folks. And it's been, been a, been a good ride. And I think there's a, uh, some opt- optimism coming out here and we're all looking forward to the shell piece.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that kind of gets me, I, I think that also on the earnings call, that was really, so I, I say that the energy transition was emphasized, I think by the CEO saying that, you know, the yes. triple mandate, the energy transition, but also emphasized was that a very effective integration of Concho. The, um, and I, the the you know the having a huge shale portfolio um and efficiencies obviously with longer laterals and everything and and i i kind of i guess I've thought about this a little more given I was going to have you on the podcast and I was thinking about this and had I just been talking about Conoco without you on here, I might have said some more critical things and it made me think a little differently because I was thinking, well, you know, actually the ability to acquiring those assets and emphasizing this huge portfolio does tell the street I have massive flexibility, right? It does tell the street that I, you know, I am flexible. I am able to, you know, increase and ramp up. I, I, I guess I would, The re, I want to ask a little bit on this is that a couple of years ago, Conoco Phillips had a big presentation and I don't know if you weren't you weren't with him then, but it was a big presentation on on the change. It was the big investor day presentation. And it was on how they were changing uh, the adding rigs and dropping rigs was not efficient, right? Every downturn everybody adds rigs and drops rigs and you actually lose a ton of money getting people spooling up, spooling down. It's a mess. And they were saying we need very very inefficient. Yes, inefficient. They need to sort of stay the course. And I thought, is that you know, is the the ten rig thing drives me a little crazy? Of and it obviously probably won't stay at ten rigs with the with the shell acquisition. um, That's probably going to increase somewhat and sort of has to, right? Because then you know you you can't go unless you're going to stay at ten forever. But I would assume then you can't. You don't want to really drop from there. But I would imagine that creeping up a little bit. It's going. I mean, ninety dollars barrel oil, like creeping up (laughs) a little bit, and just the nature of the nature of the business. And sometimes you're going to have to add rigs here and there um, because it's, it's opportune time and moment. And that may, that acres might need to be drilled to be held for n- numbers of different reasons. Sure, sure. But, so does that, do you think that still makes sense of the, that Conoco is not going to spool up, spool down, that now we're sort of at the steady level and that you can sort of hold it, but also increase a little bit when you want to?
1: Uh, I do think so. Of course, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are yet, but, uh, we, we we kind of characterize it's probably a heritage, heritage Concho term. We kind of think of it like a study ship. It's, when you're when you're when you're trying to pick up rigs or lay down rigs real quick, um, it, things just get really messy, really inefficient. You lose things through the crack. But when you run when you run it steady, call it at ten rigs, then you can really get a lot of data analytics in, just a ton of efficiency. Drive a lot of efficiencies towards that because you're spending your time on that, not trying to plan for the next rig move and trying to pick up rigs, lay down rigs, and all, all the stuff that brings. So I, I I do like I mean of course we can all we can all argue that that to increase a little bit on the uh, just increase rigs a little bit basically decrease your, some of your your uh um, your free cash flow um, and increase we'll probably make more money for that but then you, then you're back into the same scenario we were in 2018 I guess 2019 is as soon as enough people do that and something happens globally and your oil prices crash then you wish you would have just stayed flat so it's I don't know I, I'm not sure if we're trying to skate to where the puck is or it's going to be. Or for just holding steady for efficiencies, but I mean, I, I, I get it and I like it.
0: Yeah, well, and you kind of you segue into a perfect thing I, I want to talk about, and you did that very nicely. So thank you. Is that this free cash flow? This back to this sort of investors and shareholders and everything, and and um. There's just the chain. I mean, I I, I yeah. don't know if every single person in the world has, listens to, and they obviously don't. But the people in the oil space probably have listened to earnings calls over the course of, you know, beyond the last two years. So you'd know that there's a pretty divergence. I mean, mass, right. uh, Publics, uh, small publics, big publics, big majors. Uh, the tone is shi- everything shifted. Three years, the yep. earnings calls are very very different. And and shale companies being profitable is one of them. This free cash flow thing is huge. I mean, we had a we had an industry where everyone said this business will never make money, and lo and behold. Uh, making money hand over fist, and and if you're not making, I say if you're not making money at these prices, you do not need to be in this business. Like right. you're probably not going to make because these, if you can't make money now, you're just not going to be able to. But right. I think it was the last quarter was three billion. You guys had three billion in free cash flow, six billion, I think, um, in 2021. So it was a total with with share buybacks. So it's massive amount of money, including with share buybacks being returned to shareholders. And there is a big push, you know, especially by the majors on this and the big boys on the share buybacks so share, share buyback dividends, variable dividends, you know, sort of, you name it and you hear it. And is and we're talking billions. I mean, this is that, um, and you just think about the billions of that. Yeah. Those are okay. I don't know. Let's call it 10 million. We're probably edging back to 10 million on drilling a well. I'm sure it dropped considerably, yep, you know, right. but I'm giving with inflation and stuff 10 million to drill. Well, well a billion is a lot of wells, you know I mean? Uh, you know, a hundred, a hundred million. I mean, you're, just and at ninety dollar oil and a you know thousand barrels a day. I mean this this adds up. So there is some math to be said about you know uh, the the big shareholder push by investors stuff of like well we're giving it all back to you. Well right. you're not gonna be it's it's a dance though. Um and it, it works at high oil prices. It's like well I can keep everything flat. Oil prices are high so I can give you back all this money. I I may oil prices could go down. I may need to start drilling. I need I'm gonna have to offset that sum. I'm not are my shoulders gonna be happy when I say okay, prices are down and I have to drop this down and then production is going to go down and you're going to get less money. I mean, no, I mean, there's a point where I think keeping production, you know, yes, I understand the logic of keeping production flat. But the, also the logic where operators said, hey, we're not adding oil into a market that's oversupplied. And and most oper, most CEOs I talk to, and I don't necessarily agree with them, but most CEOs I talk to would say, we're not oversupplied. We're going to be undersupplied. So the logic of saying we're, we're, we're not doing it because it wasn't oversupplied, that doesn't hold anymore then. Um, because right. I think you, you probably see, and I'm sure you know, passing around what River Oaks Club and all these post-oak and all these places in Houston, people are talking. I don't think they're talking about uh, an oversupplied market right now. Um, Most CEOs are pretty optimistic and and hopeful that, you know, we're undersupplied and we have geopolitical tensions and oil prices are going up. So it just seems like the idea that you could say, hey, we're not going to add barrels because it's oversupplied. It just doesn't, there's nothing to that anymore.
1: And fair, fair thought on that. I won't argue with that piece. I guess from my perspective, I think a lot of public companies in our space are kind of in this this no-win scenario. Obviously, at the end of the day, we, we work for the investors. We're public public-traded companies, so we work for the investors. The investors, very clearly, in eighteen nineteen were done with the overcapitalization, done with burning money, and they set up space and return free cash flow. We absolutely do that. And then, of course, pub- public opinion and, and, and obviously investment opinion now as well. Is all driving towards more ESG? Don't ramp up your oil because that's going to ramp up your emissions. So from those two perspectives, it makes sense to stay where you are, flat on oil. But we're in where we are, a, a investment hungry industry, and I would love to go increase production, you know, to go, to go meet demand. I'm, I'm more energy driven than economic driven personally. I would love to go get more oil online to meet the energy demands of the world. But listening to investors and kind of sentiment right now, we're not not doing that.
0: Absolutely. And, and I, I mean I I respect it and understand where it comes from. I know I know the economics and the I know the pressures of public companies and I and I get it. It's just um I, I really think it's uh the E the E S and G, so we, we basically we, we've leaned into the E piece, the environmental right. piece, which has nothing to do with the um, energy demand globally um, and prices. But we've leaned into that, so we have all this investor pressure um, to return money. So that you first had the you know to return money to shareholders, and by the way, you don't have to you know this is me ranting, so you don't have to necessarily comment directly on this. But you have that that big E focus, and then you've got the whole you know and return money to shareholders. Um, those are two different things, and you didn't have that that E. Focus until really last year in in earnest and and case in point and ConocoPhillips is an example of that of a company that is the first oil company to sign on to the Paris Climate Accords going net zero by 2050. Well, the U.S. wasn't in the Paris Accords um, until January of, of 2021. So when people say this is uh, this is very top down, this is a, a political ESG eb- has flown into the uh, the public investors, has pub float into the investor space, it can change. It can shift. And I think people right. just have to be cautious of the That can shift with it. And I think there's going to be a lot of industry leaders that are going to have to, I wouldn't say eat their words, but they're going to have to shift a bit with it. Because um, if, if you're leaning into the E so much, but the world has shifted around you, and then you sort of have to be producing oil to meet the demands. I mean, the, the, the rhetoric is just going to have to change a little sure. bit. And so making money is important, but also a $90 oil, it's hard for me to... Um, it, it would be hard if the thesis is we have to make money and we have to do low carbon and everything. That's fine, but I, you also have to be honest with investors that here's my low carbon bucket. I'm, I'm Chevron, Exxon, are putting, and I don't think ConocoPhillips says the percentage of capex that goes to it. But you know, Exxon and Chevron said we're putting one to two percent of our capex in in basically this ESG or lower carbon bucket. You know. I, I, at least people are asking, you know, BP, what are your returns for your wind, your your wind farm? Because you right. paid a lot for the acreage, and so people eventually will be saying, you just spent two percent of your capex on this stuff, to um, that is basically a tax, right? It's 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 not going to re- have a return on investment, and you did that at nine dollar oil. When how much, you know, how many dollars was that? How many wells would you have drilled, and could you have just returned that to shareholders? So it's just something that's not quite logical. And I know people, um, you know, want to think it like investors want to say it is, and folks want to say it is, but. It's no different than when, you know, everybody said buy into shale. I mean, shale, buying into shale at $50 oil and spending every dime you have wasn't logical either, but companies did it. And so, um, because the the investor said you need to be into the Permian any and all costs. And I, you know, that's, I think we have to liken that a little bit to, you know, BE and ESG any and all costs. And I, I think that there, obviously, there's some cost to it.
1: I, I, I won't deny that at all. Um, and I think a lot of the, those decisions are made above my head on that piece of it. But it, it, all I can say is fair point on that one. Uh, I, I do want to touch on, I think we talk, talked a little about it before, but this, what the whole scope three, I, I, that, that's probably more out of my realm, oh, yeah. but on the scope, scope one and two, I, I'm all, I'm all, hundred, I mean, again, I, I'm energy driven. So on the scope one, reducing our scope one emissions, and we work so hard to get the stuff out of the ground and sell it to provide energy. I want to reduce all my scope one and you know, put all, keep all that in the pipe and, and sell it. And the scope 2, thats kind of just a fascinating world. I mean, I, I know Conoco's doing. I know a lot of other companies are doing it. Is how to get your scope twos down? Um, it, it's pretty hard right now for as far as generating a, generating a competitive return. There's not many Can options just- out there right now.
0: Can we just clarify, because that's a great way to sort of close this and end this up. Of that, you know, just for for listeners, is that uh, Conoco Phillips and, and many other com- companies have been, you know, obviously emissions is a big focus, scope one, scope two, and then in a lot of uh, board board uh, meetings and stuff. And and Conoco actually put theirs publicly, which I thought was, you know, transparent, awesome, because I listened to it. And there was a big question on scope three, and that was voted down by the by share by the shareholders. However, um, and the board did advocate to vote down, but however, um, you, there was a question in the last earnings call by Barclays on the scope three and Just for the listeners, and I'm not an expert on it, but I'm going to get savvy. Scope three is end user emissions, so it's bananaville. You you would literally be having to manipulate the market to be saying, okay, I'm Company X, ConocoPhillips or Exxon or whomever, and I'm going to decide who I'm selling my barrel to, and you can completely distort the market. I mean, because it's your end user emissions, and the goal with the people pushing scope three, the goal is 100% to kill oil and gas. There is no other ram way about. This of yes, we're we're killing emissions, but in order to do that, you're you're killing, you're reducing consumption, and you're distorting the market. So I, I I understand understand completely why companies are voting this down. I think they really do need to explain it a little better of what scope three is. But if you can do us a favor, because you guys do talk about reducing scope one and scope two emissions, can you just clarify what scope one and scope two emissions and how you guys are going about doing that, and then why that scope two is so much harder?
1: Yeah, absolutely. For me, scope one is all the whether it's methane or CO two, it's the direct emissions that we are emitting. Scope 2 is more the ones I source through the power grid electricity all, all the electricity we use to power our ESPs and pumping units and all that kind of stuff. So on the scope 1, I mean obviously the 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 world has shifted from I don't know 5 10 20 years ago whenever whenever we tightened up on like water and oil leaks, you can see a water leak, you can see an oil leak. You can't see a gas leak, a natural gas leak coming coming whether it's <clears throat> excuse me whether it's coming out of a tank or a valve or a, any, any kind of weep, you can't physically see it. So we're ramping up hard on whether it's OGI cameras, flyovers. uh, We do quarterly flyovers over already anyway. But anyway, it's basically the the LiDAR, leak detection and repair. Anything we can do to go proactively detect a methane leak um, or CO2 leak for that matter, and then stop it and repair it and get it back online, we're we're definitely heading down that road real quick on the scope one. The scope two, obviously, and part of that, whether we have natural gas driven compressors or other natural gas engines out here, we're looking at putting um, electrified motors on those. So you're really shifting scope one to scope two in that frame. But in the scope two world, we're just trying to figure out whether whether we build solar panels, wind turbines, whatever behind the grid, do it our, do it ourselves and own it, whether we put it in front of the grid and do a kind of co op consortium, or frankly just just buy buy green power. I and mean, as far as as far as I know, that's the three ways to do it to uh, reduce your scope but two.
0: That's, that's just uh, your overall CO2 footprint, which. I guess I, I'm more, you know, the methane thing is is a bigger, uh, yeah. it's pretty big. So the ability to to be handling that and doing it right, I'm I'm awful at that. I think it's a little, it's it's harder on the scope too, and I I'm not sure it is, it's necessarily going to be fruitful because you are asking a lot of companies sure. to sort of, you know, kill themselves on this stuff, and and I I'm not sure your your footprint, your actual carbon footprint of installing all that stuff may be higher, you know. So it just it just seems a little crazy to me because I know that. Oil and gas production in the U.S. is 1%. The, produ- the CO2 emissions from oil and gas production, I'm not saying methane, but CO2 sure. emissions is 1% of U.S. emissions. So if right. every single company went down to zero, you're a drop in the bucket uh, for, for CO2 emissions sure. for the U.S. So I, I do think that has to be put in perspective. And I know a lot of companies don't want to talk about that, but it's a reality in terms of, you know, killing yourself to install, you know, wind and solar, which, um, sure. you know, may not is also not necessarily sustainable, depending on where you're getting it from.
1: Well, I guess I guess the, I agree with you. I guess the way I phrase it is, I'm, I'm actively in, in my basin and the, the other basin is the same. We're actively spending millions of dollars a year to go find and replace find and, replace and fix these methane leaks and CO2. Right. Right. But but we're actively spending money on that now because it makes sense environmentally, but it makes sense economically too, especially at this gas price. So that, that that's bread and butter for us too. right now. On, on the scope too, I would say we're just worthy and we are in the analysis phase on that one, trying to figure out what's the right choice.
0: Yep. So I think that's evolving. Well, that's that's uh, fantastic, and I really appreciate the clarity and the honesty. And lastly, I mean, so on the gas side, I and I, I, I don't, we just feel like we didn't touch on I mean, is there more excitement? I mean, that has to be a little thing of, I mean, if if anybody was not getting the gas, I mean, if there was any question on flaring and stuff, and I know that was a big initiative years ago, which which sure. you know, most of us in the industry understand, you know why. why people flare sort of at the beginning. Um, and most that, you know, North Dakota, it's always been an issue. Most of the wells that actually flared were actually connected. It was more about the, you know, the, the size of the pipe and everything. But now, I mean, with gas prices, um, it's huge. Uh, you actually right. capturing all that, making sure you right. you want, there's an economic incentive when there wasn't before. And that, that's not an excuse that shouldn't have been done before. Sure. Um, but even now in North Dakota, you're seeing companies actually throttle production back to make sure they're hitting their flaring requirements. So um, I think that's a, that's a reality, but I'm just curious on the gas side, if if you know gas wasn't as exciting in the in the in the Permian, and the Permian produces a lot of gas, natural gas, right. and we're talking probably it was 17 BCF that we're probably talking north of what's it's uh, the associated gas production is massive, right. and the other yes. and the gas production is massive. But imagine that at five million barrels per day um, of crude oil production and 17 BCF day, if I'm right, of gas probably pushing 18 BCF a day, that that is uh, you're trying to capture every little bit you possibly can,
1: right? I, I absolutely agree. And it just, the, but, but, but I guess we are definitely trying to reduce every amount of flaring we can, whether it's economic or just the right thing to do. It's both, honestly. Um, I, I think you'll, you'll see some numbers come out in a while over time as things come out publicly. But, you know, we are we're doing, doing everything we can to reduce flaring. And I think for the third and fourth quarter of last year, and we're off to a good start this year, we have had some of our lowest flaring numbers ever. And I, I think part of that is, of course, now, now we have this uh, midstream infrastructure built out everywhere. Um, there, there's some, there's some little pockets here and there that, that they they can't seem to keep the compression running. But a a lot of what the flaring you see now, at least across for Conoco and maybe some of the basin as well, is as soon as we, so we, we produce our gas, send it to the midstream, they compress it, send it on the pipeline. If their compressor drops and we're not just going to blow up a tank battery. So we'll, we'll flare for, you know, 15, well, probably an hour or two. Um, until we can get out there and shut the wells in proactively, so yes that that goes to flare but what what's kind of mind boggling to me anyway is I think I did the math a while ago and it, 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 if you flare for an eight hour period in a month that's one percent flaring and and we're we, we as we as a company are well below one percent flaring in the permian right now so to me to okay. me our, our ops teams are doing a phenomenal job when you look at the kind of what is it what is actual one percent of a month and we're flaring less than that that's it's pretty amazing
0: it'd be nice I would love a dollar amount on that as well um yeah. just so to, yeah. uh, that's, and, and I think it's important if you, you know, there's, there's something nice about growing up around the business of, cause uh, I flaring was always as a kid I mean you're flaring or venting and you're venting, right. you're going straight into the environment. So flaring is, was the more beneficial option. And it, it there is safety reasons, right? Sometimes you do have to, for sure. safety reasons, you're always going to have to have that, um, have that option. So it's not, I don't, I think, especially at these prices, you know, folks don't actually want to do it. And to, I mean, no, that, nor should that, that should be absolutely being reduced and especially given, you know, it's it would be a very hard sell, regardless, given the energy crisis in Europe and floating around the world and higher gas prices. Of right. uh, you know, folks flaring this. That being said, lots of uh, lots of stuff is flared in Russia. Lots of stuff sure. is flared in Nigeria. Um, so it's flared and and in Iran. Um, so I mean, those are those are real big issues. But with that, that you've been a um, any, anything else you would like to say? I don't want to I don't want to cut you off. By no,
1: like, I just appreciate the time here.
0: Absolutely. No, you've been a fantastic guest. I really appreciate. Um, the nerdy conversation and you being willing to talk. Um, I think it's a, a really good overview of of the Permian and, and Conoco, and what you guys are doing. And I will absolutely have you back on the podcast and really sure. appreciate you taking the time.
1: Nope. Yep. Always appreciate it.
0: Uh, thanks guys. Bye.